Hello, welcome to Hampshire Fans Podcast. And we've had a little break whilst Phil's been busy doing other things. Um, And we're going to do some interesting interviews with various people that are involved in the Hampshire cricket um, in some way. And today, my special guest is writer Tom Hewlin. Tom's recently written a book with former Hampshire wicketkeeper Michael Bates called Keeping Up, and he's going to tell us about that, as well as his time covering Hampshire for the Deep Extra Cover website. Welcome, Tom. Hi, Ian. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Nice to speak to you. You too. Um, So, Tom, tell us about yourself, your cricketing background. Indeed. Well, uh, yeah, I've been writing about cricket, I suppose, since about 2010. So, I remember um, going to the pub with a mate of mine and I was I was I just turned 30 and I wasn't doing what I wanted to be doing in life. I was working in the city in London and it was a bit of a soulless job, to be honest. Um, I've always been a writer. I've always written stories when I was a kid and growing up. I was always, you know, sort of excelled at English at at school and at college. Um, And my mate, my mate said to me, you should start a blog. Uh, he'd just started one writing about um, Wolves. He is a Wolverhampton Wanderers supporter. Um, and he said, don't do football because everyone's doing football. Why don't you do cricket? And um, cricket and football are my two huge passions. So it was as simple as that, really. I started a, a cricket blog in 2010. I covered the Ashes, um, that you know memorable series when England beat Australia down under. Um, and from there, it just took off, really. I, I got approached by a few people. I, I wrote a couple of articles for... Uh, the test, test match sofa, so Dan Norcross's mm. brainchild back in the day. Um, and then I got approached by the editor of Deep Extra Cover at the time, which was a guy called Ryan Bailey. And he asked me to start writing some some articles for them. Um, and Deep Extra Cover was sort of a new website looking to cover county cricket. And the idea back then was to have a reporter in every um, county, basically, if possible, um, that would sort of cover the club um and go to as many games as possible and write articles interview players and coaches and stuff um and that's how it really started i started doing i started covering hampshire hampshire my local club um i used to live in london but moved to hampshire in about 2008 uh, moved to west end which is the village just up the road from the rose bowl so it was absolutely ideal for me and uh, yeah i started writing articles from that 2012 season so it was more through sort of circumstance and location that you were writing about Hampshire. You weren't necessarily a Hampshire fan first. No, I mean, I've always loved cricket. You know, cricket's been a huge um, part of my life growing up. You know, I always played it with my dad in the garden at home and my mates and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I suppose I, I didn't really have an affiliation to any particular county as such, but I lived in, in Hampshire. I was really close to the Rose Bowl and um you know, it's a it's a great county, and it was it was once I started getting involved with the club and and sort of working there and and stuff. It was it was really sort of lovely place, lovely people there, and and you know it became it became my home county very quickly. If that makes sense, I mean I grew up in mm. Jersey, so I had no real home county as such. Um, but Hampshire is is definitely definitely home now. Oh, okay, so it's, yeah, quite interesting there. Um, your background, so you were covering Hampshire. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing that this kind of answers my next question, but for the benefit of the listeners. So you've recently written a book with Michael Bates called Keeping Up. And um, that's very different autobiography to the ones that you would normally read about cricketers. Yeah. How did writing the book come about with Michael? 
Yeah, well, I'm again a little bit of fortune in in, in one sense. I was um, so back in 2012. So I just started writing for Deep Extra Cover, and um, I was looking. I suppose my niche during my whole time at Deep Extra Cover was I was trying to, you know, I liked writing interviews with players that were on the up, if you like. So mm. I interviewed sort of Moeen Ali and Chris Jordan. Obviously, not my home county players, but I sort of interviewed those guys before they sort of made England debuts and stuff like that. And I don't know, I spoke to Baron Chopra, players like that you thought could be England internationals in the future. And um, and sort of Batesy had started that season incredibly strongly. I mean, he was catching everything. He actually was scoring runs as well. He scored 100 at Headingley um, early on in that season. And um, I, I got in touch with the Hampshire press officer, who was a guy called Simon Vincent at the time. And asked if I could speak to Batesy um, because he, he really felt like he was 21 at the time. He was really on the up. He, you know, he'd, he'd kept brilliantly that season, and, and like I said, his batting was had started really well. So um, yeah, so I got in touch, and I think we spoke in about the April of that season, April or May. So it was not long after he'd scored that hundred at Headingley, and around that time, I do remember him saying that the. I think it was the England Lions coach. I can't remember the name of the guy. I think we do mention it in the book, actually. But the England Lions coach had come down to Hampshire to watch him a couple of times. So he was definitely on England's radar at the time. Anyway, we, we spoke and we did an article and, and it was in Deep Extra Cover that year. And then we just sort of stayed in touch. And obviously that 2012 was that season when uh, Hampshire won the, the double. So the CB40 mm-hmm. and, the, and the T20 uh double so i was at lords for the final when he when he took that amazing um, final ball take which effectively um won the game for hampshire uh, with the mm. scores all level and yeah we just sort of stayed in touch really and the season after obviously adam Wheater came in and batesy was displaced as the first choice keeper and we stayed in touch and we did an article which i think was in um all out cricket i think it was in either their magazine or online and then i did another piece I think um, there was a there was a, a wider piece about county cricket in in all out cricket, uh, and I did a feature on Batesy, which which was in there as well. So yeah, so it was just one of those we just kept sort of touching base through the years, and then eventually I think it's the start of sort of 2017 we got together. This is sort of after he'd obviously stopped playing, and discussed. I just sort of threw the idea out about potentially doing a book on his story, albeit he had had a really short career, but it was quite intense. I mean, he was really highly thought of you know he's thought of as one of the best keepers in the game let alone in Hampshire kind of thing you know and thought of very highly as peers you didn't really hear a bad word said about Batesy you know people like Liam Dawson who feature in the book Chris Wood you know they were constantly saying how what a strong keeper he was and how they couldn't believe he wasn't still playing and stuff so it just felt like a really pertinent story Um, Mm. I knew I knew him well so I suppose I was biased but as a as a cricket fan, I've got young kids. I mean, my son's very into sport. He's more into football than cricket, but he's still very sporty. There's a huge piece there on just, you know, a, individuals developing through sports, you know, progressing through elite um, academy programs, if you like, uh, and how, you know, it always fascinates me how much work is required to get to that sort of first professional contract if you like and and getting it a job effectively in the profession in a professional sport so for me there was a huge story there in terms of the dedication Batesy had given the game and how ultimately even though he was thought of as one of the best in the game at his particular skill that was still not quite enough 
Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that I mean, I've read the book, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks. Because it's it's um it's different to your average autobiography. And I suppose in yeah. a way it's not really an autobiography, is it? Yeah, exactly. What I would say about it is yeah, that you're used to reading cricket books about players who've reached the top of their game, mm-hmm. that they've retired at the top or they've gone out of cricket on their own terms this sadly wasn't the case with Michael but as you say he had so much to tell Mm. and yeah the different perspectives that it gave me because I must confess that when the Bates-Wheater situation came about I liked Michael Bates but I could also understand what they were doing with Adam Wheater yeah and um I probably wasn't as sympathetic at the time to Michael Bates as I could have been. Yeah. And reading about how he felt and uh, things like that just gave it a real, a new perspective for me. So I think you've told a really, really important story there. Thanks. Well, I mean, I think, you know, the thing is, and Batesy, I mean, the story was obviously a difficult one to write in certain parts of it. I mean, there were certain parts like the early days, the, the stuff that he did with the England age groups that was you know, really nice moments, sort of re- re- retelling his youth and stuff like that, working with Joss Butler, Joe Root, Ben Stokes, all that. I mean, obviously, that's that's brilliant stuff to talk about. You know, the stuff around Weeter and when Weeter arrived, obviously, those are difficult conversations that, that we both had together. But ultimately, you know, they had to be done for, for the for the story, for the book. And I mean, I suppose just going back to the the idea, the thinking behind the book, I mean, ultimately, for me, I wanted to tell, you know, I'm interested as a writer, not just as a sort of sports or even a cricket writer specifically, you know, my ultimate goal is telling a story, you know, and that's that's how I sort of see my writing and what I enjoy doing. And for me, Batesy's story, if you like, was huge highs, huge lows. Mm. And as as we wrote the book, actually, it it wasn't the story wasn't wasn't finished when we started writing. So his coaching career really took off and and the success he had sort of coaching the Western Storm to two key, um, the, the, the sort of women's uh, T20 tournament successes, uh, two in three years, and also the England women winning the um, the World Cup in 2017. You know, he was he was part of both of those. So he was on a massive high from that. And that was really nice to be able to end on a high, um, to, to end the story mm. on a high, because it was, you know, the worst stage where it was quite brutal, you know, and, and I mean, we, we interviewed Joe Root, as part of the book, and we went over to Bristol. It was before um, England played a, uh, a 50 overs match against Ireland in Bristol, and uh, we interviewed Rooty and um, Sam Billings together uh, with Batesy and I. And it was just the four of us sort of chatting in a cor- in a corridor outside the England dressing room. It was a really weird, <laughs> really weird moment. Um, and there's people like Graham Thorpe and the backroom staff and the other players walking past us as we we're chatting and stuff. Um, but there was a really poignant moment at the end where where Root says to to Bates, we sort of stopped recording, I think, by this stage, or we sort of stood up at least anyway. And uh, he just goes, I'm just so frustrated that you're not playing anymore. You know, mm. he just and he was just genuinely annoyed. And he Root obviously had been at Headingley when Bates had scored that hundred, so he really knew Bates could bat. You know, so he was just genuinely frustrated that this guy that he'd worked with throughout his childhood you know, it's not playing first class cricket anymore. So that was that was a real poignant moment. And I remember Bates, he drove me to the train station after that. And he was just sort of, he was really weighing up his life, really, in a way. I know it sounds a bit melodramatic, but he was like, should I give it another go? You know, should I actually 
try try getting another another gig playing cricket somewhere um so yeah so it was it was it was it was beautiful to to end the story and on a high with his coaching it was great you know but also there were some really difficult conversations and difficult moments through the process really mm. yeah i mean the human interest part of it is you you've brought that across wonderfully well Thanks. and you know the time in the book where he's he's no longer a professional cricketer and i think he's pulling pints in a yeah. pub in yately and things like yeah. that where you just i'm sure we've all had uh, scenarios ourselves in work where we perhaps lost out on a promotion or we've lost out on a job opportunity yeah uh, along the lines and it's like you can you can really sympathize with michael and what he went through on that yeah and it's 100%. pleasing to hear that um he's still within the game at least and passing on his knowledge and expertise for his coaching so yeah absolutely because i mean we've all been there like you say and i mean that's the human element is incredibly powerful i i felt and you know the idea that this guy who's got these amazing hands that catches everything behind the stumps is suddenly pulling pints i mean that, that was a really stark sort of visualization when we were talking and stuff and yeah i mean i i i totally agree and i mean i don't know what about you ian but for me as a a sports fan all my life I played cricket at school played football at school played football till I was about 18 uh well cricket similarly actually you know for me being a professional was never um I never even really thought about it let alone sort of tried to work towards it so Mm. you know to see someone achieving that I mean it's like they're they're sort of demigods in our eyes anyway aren't they Mm. like professional sports people like wow you know that's amazing so to sort of get to that level and then for it to unravel so quickly and at such a young age, it's it's sort of it is sort of heartbreaking, you know. I mean, it's it's almost like oh, we could miss out on a job promotion or we even get sacked or made redundant or whatever in in our line of work or, or whatever we do. And it's like oh, that's bad. But you know, knowing how much we would love to be a professional sports person and then seeing that unravel is is quite it's quite heart wrenching, really. That's right, because you know he went from as you say, 2012, the highs of winning the one or the limited overs double yeah. of Hampshire to the following season being second choice. And within what, two, three years, he's, he's no longer at any professional club. Yeah. yeah um, exactly. That, you know, that, yeah, youngsters do unfortunately leave the game all the time, but yeah. the, the contrast for Michael is more stark than anyone else. Yeah. In that you get some youngsters maybe get a little bit of a run in the team, say at 21, don't mm. have a lot of success, so they're released the year after, that sort of thing. Mm. But Michael had such great early success. Yeah. Um, all the pundits and things talking up how good his wicket-keeping skill was and things like that. Yeah. So he was on people's radar um, to go to out the game in uh, – such quick time is you know an almost unique story yeah Um, yeah yeah exactly and i mean i think i don't know if you're at our book launch um that we had at the rose bowl this summer but jimmy adams like really kindly um agreed to talk with us at the book launch which was fantastic because obviously he was part of the leadership team at hampshire if you like that sort of um you know that made that decision to bring in adam wheater and, you know, he spoke candidly and he said, you know, sort of the two hardest decisions of his entire time at Hampshire. Well, the first one, I think he was saying, was James Tomlinson not playing in the in the Lord's final in 2012. 
Um, but but then also the decision to bring in Wheater and you know ultimately what happened to Batesy was like one of the you know those two were the the two hardest things that he had to sort of preside over. Mm. And I think ultimately the line of the day in that in that book launch speech that Jimmy gave was you know he basically said I was wrong you know we were wrong to to sort of um, to tr- not not to treat Batesy the way at the end of the day it's it's professional sports and he, and even. Even Batesy wouldn't say, look, it was, it was nothing personal. Do you know what I mean? It was their strategic mm. decision to take the team in that way. And there's nothing personal about it. But ultimately, the, what happened to Batesy as a result of Wheater's arrival, um, you know, was 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 pretty was pretty crushing. And, and mm. but, but a decision that Jimmy sort of looks back on as, as saying they got wrong. Yeah. And it, it does seem like to me, yes, um, professional sport is a brutal world, mm. but it. Uh, reading the sort of background and how it came about, how he was treated, does seem particularly harsh, even by professional sports standards. Yeah, I think you're right. More I mean, faith I, could have been shown, I think. Yeah, agreed. I think um, I think that's that is the piece, isn't it? Because I think you know when you've got people like Nick Pothis talking as he did, you know, incredibly openly about what he thought of of, of how things went. I mean. Obviously, Nick got released at the end of the 2011 season, which led to Batesy being promoted to first choice keeper. I mean, he was like, look, I would have stayed on as a as a second team keeper, but sort of mentor Batesy through the first couple of seasons so that, you know, helping him develop into a proper county, you know, wicketkeeper. Because it's not just being able to catch balls. It's being, you know, like he said, it's being at the ground all the time, being involved in the game all the time. It's It's building your innings, building your average up. And I mean, you know, Nick was really um, interesting to speak to in that sense. I mean, in terms of like the people we spoke to in the book, I mean, Nick's piece was really quite interesting in just maybe how Hampshire missed a trick a little bit by not keeping him on the books and helping him to to sort of develop Batesy, because there's no doubt that the, that the talent was there. And, you, you you know, as much as we all say, oh, you know, it's, it's gutting that Batesy left, I mean, ultimately it's gutting for Batesy that he left and it's gutting for the fans. But ultimately Hampshire lost, you know, lost the surface as a really good wicketkeeper, which in time may have developed into a, a proficient batsman. Yeah, there's every chance that he would have and the signs were there. I mean, you've mentioned mm. already that 100 at Headingley, that yeah. that that's a top-class attack that Yorkshire had. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and there were other signs um, of him batting well. And I mm. think... In terms of also, you mention a lot in the book about uh, the unseen things or the unquantifiable difference that having a solid wicketkeeper behind the stumps can make. Yeah. That if he takes the opposition gun batsman, a chance that most keepers wouldn't get on a low score, mm. you can't fully quantify it there. Yeah, you could say, oh, he's got that guy for five. Yeah, and normally he he's nailed on for a half century, so you yeah. could say, well, he's worth forty five runs, but you'll never yeah. know whether he would have got that or not. So yeah, yeah, I mean um, the stat the stats element. I mean we did talk a little bit about that. So I think we referenced sort of Tim Wigmore and um, John Hotton, two sort of um, esteemed cricket writers, um, who have both sort of talked about quantifying the value of a wicketkeeper in. Uh, well, all forms of cricket, really, but particularly, I suppose, the sort of T20, the shorter form, um, and just how, you know, the effects, the fact that they can affect the whole innings, essentially, as a wicketkeeper, the whole um, fielding innings, essentially, they can impact by keeping up to the wicket exactly that. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, so it, it, it was definitely uh, an interesting one to, to look at in that sense as well. 
in, in your opinion, what, what do you think was the biggest factor in why it didn't work out for Michael? Was it the management just uh, yeah. sort of gave up too easily or was it was there something else? I don't know. I mean, it's I mean, we we didn't we spoke to Jimmy uh, Adams. We didn't speak to um, Giles White. We didn't speak to Dale Benkenstein, who was also co- he was the sort of first team coach at Hampshire from 2013. So he had to sort of manage we the we to Bates conundrum, if you like. Um, mm. He sort of he sort of walked into that. So we were quite interested in speaking to Dale, but that one didn't work out. Didn't speak to to Chalks. Just felt it was he was possibly a little bit too close and may not have been either willing to speak or candid or being able to be candid. So we we just at the end of the day we didn't really want to rock the boat with Hampshire. You know, it wasn't mm. about that. Um, and we felt we got enough from Jimmy to, to sort of go within the book. But I mean, my sense was possibly a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction, I think, to the batting more generally at Hampshire that season. Because I think looking back, 2012, albeit they won obviously the two limited overs um, competitions, I think there was a there was a concerted effort within the club to get back into Division One in, in the championship. And I think top order runs were a bit of an issue for for us mm-hmm. that season. Um, and I think. Well, I know, obviously, having spoken to Jimmy, that some of the senior players were talking that we, that, that as a team, we needed more runs. And I think, uh, and there's, you know, there's a, there's a quote from Jimmy talking about this in the book about, you know, looking at the middle, lower middle order for more runs. So that they were sort of specifically looking for lower middle order, order runs, which, you know, looking back, I mean, as a Hampshire fan, I think a lot of us would sort of would would <laughs> would sort of look at the you know the batting at times and you think on paper wow it looks really impressive and you know how many times over the last sort of five six seven years do you do you look at it and think oh they've sort of collapsed pretty spectacularly there actually so I'm not mm-hmm. sure it was just lower middle order runs that they were lacking um, but that seemed to be where they were looking to sort of prop up the batting a little bit with sort of middle order middle order runs essentially and that's when the Wheater um, thing became became a uh, became a, a, a realistic option for them and I mean uh, you know talking about luck at the beginning of the um of the podcast where we talked about how I got into cricket writing but you know it was a bit of an opportunity knock situation for Weeter as well because Hampshire played Essex that season and Weeter apparently scored an unbelievable hundred which took Essex to within a couple of runs of, of beating Hampshire in, in a in a one day game and um I think Jimmy and and Jimmy Mascarenas. I think that was the story that they were on the balcony talking about what they what they do to sort of get more runs out of the middle order. And, and Wheater's name was mentioned sort of a week or two after that game um, as a realistic option because they hadn't. I don't think they'd really appreciated how good Wheater was potentially with the bat at that stage. And then they saw that innings and thought, wow, that could be something that that benefits us. So yeah. So I think I think long story short, I think yeah. So there's a couple of things, a couple of factors that came together that. The determination to get into Division One in the Championship, the need for for lower order runs, and then a chance sort of um, sighting, I guess, of Weeter, you know, Weeter basically demolishing their attack in a one day game, and those three three things amalgamated to to sort of offer Weeter as the solution forward. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating story, and I'd recommend mm. you get hold of a copy of the book if you can, because. Um, there's just not another cricket book out there that's like it. And it's a thoroughly enjoyable read, Tom. Thank you, so Cheers. hats off to you on pulling off an incredible story. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. So in terms, yeah, you've already mentioned your your interview with Joe Root and um, Sam mm. Billings, Joss Butler. Yeah. Um, I believe you also, well, 
I don't believe in that. <laughs> I know for a fact, having read the book, that you also interviewed Adam Gilchrist. We what did. was that like? Well, um, so I, I being the sort of writer and the, you know, the journalist, if you like, did pretty much all of the interviews for this book. Mm. But Batesy was not giving up the Gilchrist chat. So, so <laughs> as you as you would expect, and fair play to him. So um, we couldn't. It was one of those logistics because obviously Gilly was in Perth. We're in England trying to get a time when all you know me and Batesy could be together to phone Gilly was just a nightmare. So Batesy did that one, um, and it was like a cold September morning in England. Batesy was there with a with a cup of tea on the go, and I think it was a nice warm evening in Perth. And Gilly was there with in shorts and t-shirts, supping a glass of red wine. Um, so it was a, a really nice chat. I mean, it was it was something that we were desperately determined. So when we started the book, I mean, like I said, you know, we just wanted to sort of just, uh, chart Batesy's story. And as we wrote it, we thought, well, he's worked with Joss Butler, he's worked with Joe Root, he's worked with Ben uh, Ben Stokes, etc. Let's try and get these these guys on board, which they all did. Um, we didn't actually ask Ben Stokes, um, but I kind of wish we had now. But anyway, <laughs> that's another story. Um, but yeah, and and it was like, well, the whole the whole sort of turning point for wicket keeping in general, it, you know, in the last you know modern history of the game really is obviously Adam Gilchrist. So we wanted to speak to him. It was one of those things that you just put out there and you think, can we do it? And um, we had a couple of sort of mutual friends. So Batesy was tapping up George Bailey, who was over from Australia as England, uh, sorry as Hampshire's um, overseas player for a couple of years around the time we were writing the book. So he was trying to get Gilchrist details out of Bailey. And I had a mutual friend who, well, one of my friends, basically he manages Daniel Ricardo, the Formula One driver, who oh, happens, yeah. he happens to be friends with um, with Gilly. So it was actually Glenn and via Daniel Ricardo that got us in, uh, which is pretty, ama- pretty amazing. They always say, don't they, you're also like a couple of people away, mm-hmm. like connection wise to someone really famous. <laughs> and so it proved. Um, so, so now by talking to you, I'm now... A few steps away from Adam three Gilchrist, steps then. away from Gilchrist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's like it's almost like your best friends. So um, yeah, so we 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 got the Gilly chat, and I mean, it was a it, the the chat was so good that you know I, I was listening it to it, listening to it, transcribing it after after Bates had done it, and um, you you know obviously as a journalist you 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 do an interview and you you're writing an article on on the back of it, or in this case a chapter for a book. And you're like, okay, what what are my key quotes? What do I want to sort of pull through to the article, etc.? And the whole conversation was just so good. You know, it was just like two like wicket keeping geniuses <laughs> colliding <laughs> and having this amazing conversation. Um, so I transcribed the whole thing, and um, we basically put it in the book more or less verbatim. We took a little bit of the sort of pleasantries at the start out and just, you know, tightened it up a little bit there. But the rest literally is word for word what was said. And um, mm-hmm. it was just a great conversation. You know, um, I think Gilly had done a little bit of, um, you know, uh, research on on Batesy. So he knew about his game and um, he'd, he'd heard the name before. Um, so he was, you know, he was super complimentary about Batesy and what he'd read was really strong and he's, he was sort of gutted for him that he wasn't still playing and even Gilly was sort of saying have you thought about giving it another go you know and it was you know that's like Adam Gilchrist saying that so yeah just a fascinating insight into the art of wicket keeping what makes um you know what makes a a brilliant keeper and I think the most fascinating thing we found we took away from that um interview for me personally was um Gilly 
prided himself on his keeping. And he said he sort of trained 80% on his keeping and 20% on his batting. And his batting was a bit more of a, um, a, a release, I suppose. If, if he'd kept well in the game, he was, he was delighted. He was happy. But if he kept badly but batted well, he'd be on a real downer. So mm. I think, you know, it just sort of showed. And, and I think Michael and, and Adam sort of got this real... They just connected. You know, you just have some conversations where people just connect. And it was mm. just a, re- a really nice conversation, really inf- super informative. If anyone likes cricket, likes wicketkeeping, has any kind of interest in that, into what makes an absolute winner of a wicketkeeper. And, you know, it's just incredible. Hampshire now have two glovemen in terms of Tom Alsop and Lewis McManus. Yes. Um, and they kind of keep swapping the gloves, mainly down to sort of bad luck of injuries for both of them. Yeah. Do you think history might repeat itself here, similar to the Weta Bates situation? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I suppose I get what you're saying. I think, I think, I mean, interestingly, Bates is working or has worked with both of them um, in recent years as a, a sort of wicket-keeping coach going in to help, help the guys at Hampshire. I mean, from looking on, I mean, I, I really like Lewis. I really like his game. I, I, I love the way he keeps, he, you know, it, it, there was a number, you know, those sort of sort of 10, 20 second clips you see on Twitter that, you know, mm. I mean, a couple of stumpings that he, he'd done. I think he got Laurie Evans, didn't he, in the Sussex game and stuff like that. Just super smart, super quick, like work behind the stumps. Um, I just think I just really like the way he keeps. He's really busy, a bit like Batesy um, for me. And I mean, Batesy said he is a bit of a pinch hitter down the order for later in the innings as well. So, you know, I really not I don't know Tom at all, but from what I've seen of Lewis and I've, I've sort of chatted to him a couple of times, he seems like a really solid bloke. And, and, um, you know, I hope, I hope he kicks on. I think he signed a contract extension in the last few months, uh, I believe. So, you know, it looks like he's, um, he's well thought of by the club. So I hope he kicks on as for Tom. I mean, he looks to me more of, more of a batter than a, than a keeper, um, you know, make possibly more in the mold of a, of a weeter. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it p- plays out. But, you know, having written the book um, that we've just discussed, you may not be surprised to learn that I'm probably slightly more in Lewis's corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's understandable. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. Um, moving on, um, you're obviously talking about your time with Deep Extra Cover, where you were yeah. covering Hampshire. And you talked a bit at the start about how you got into that. What What were the highlights of your time covering Hampshire? Well, um, on a on a purely personal um level i mean at the, at the time that i was covering hampshire um michael carberry was was really in the england selectors minds obviously um the ashes in was it 2013-14 mm. he played at and um i think he was like the second highest run scorer wasn't he and um but he got dropped straight after the series and was never sort of looked at again by england um although i think that april afterwards he actually did some sessions with graham gooch and I happened to be covering Hampshire, I think it was like a, a, a championship game against Worcestershire, uh, midweek, it was hardly anyone there, it was grim, grim weather, there was no one in the press box, it's one of those days where it's just, not, you know, it's almost like nothing was happening, but it, it, there was a game of cricket going on, if you know mm. what I mean. So I popped along to the press, well, I say press conference, I mean it was just like a little huddle in the um in the players sort of restaurant after the game at, at the Rose Bowl and um Carbs was talking and he said about these sessions with Gooch and I think it was only Kevin James who was there from um, Radio Solent and me I was the only sort of written press person there I think Simon Walter from the Daily Echo had, had sort of said I'll oh, just let us know if anything if anything exciting comes up kind of thing <laughs> 
And um, yeah, so Carbs had mentioned this thing about working with Gooch again, which at the time was quite a big deal because, you know, he'd sort of come out a few weeks earlier and sort of written a piece in the, well, not, you know, he'd sort of started, had an interview written up in The Guardian where he'd sort of said, you know, it wasn't fair that he'd been ostracised after the ashes. So the fact that he was working with England again was quite a big deal. And I managed to float the story under the noses of the um, the Guardian editor, who I happened to sort of know on Twitter and we'd had a chat and stuff. So this little news story that I knocked up off the back of this interview that no one else had been at um, ended up in the Guardian newspaper, which for me personally was just like incredible. You know, this little Jersey boy that had sort of started a blog and got into cricket writing, but completely by accident suddenly appearing in the Guardian newspaper. And it was in the paper itself, not just um, on the website. So, yeah, that was, for me, a, like a career highlight. But, I mean, others, I mean, Hampshire was so great because they they just, you know, they welcomed Deep Extra Coverer into the press room. They gave us access to players, which was fantastic. We interviewed, or I interviewed, like, a number of the, the first-team players, Carberry, obviously, but um, Vince, Dorset, all, all, the, all the sort of stalwarts of the team now kind of thing. Um, and I also got... Um, I got in the press box for England v India, one of the one of the tests they had there a few years back, which again mm. was just incredible. And you know, all the people you follow on Twitter, all the amazing cricket writers, you know, your George de Bells, your um, you know, Dean Wilson, you know, all the guys from, you know, all the nationals were there. So that for me, those those two moments, I suppose, were just amazing moments um on a personal and sort of professional level as well, I guess. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I've had similar experience covering Ireland test matches before and yeah, yeah mixing in the press box, Jared Kimber, um, yeah. Melinda Farrell, thing, things like that. So I it mean, is a was... bit weird to be there, but it's like, hang on, I'm here on merit. I'm, I'm, I've got a press pass as well and I'm doing a job. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I've got a story exactly along those lines, actually, because for the, C, for the CB40 final, I was in the Lord's press box and... <laughs> I literally sat next to this girl um, who was working on the obviously on the game next to me. Um, I, I sat next to she's called Gemma Wright. She was writing for the Huffington Post. I sat next to her for the whole game and we didn't say a word because I was thinking I'm a terrible writer. I don't deserve to be here. <laughs> you know all those insecurities that all of us I'm sure experience at the start of going into those kind of environments. And then. Towards the very end of the game, obviously, you know, it's to and fro, Hampshire and Warwickshire, who was going to win. And we finally started talking. And actually, George DeBell came and spoke to Gemma um, and they were talking. And then I sort of joined into that conversation and sort of finally found a way to actually muster up the you know, confidence to start a conversation. And um, we ended up getting on really well, Gemma and I. And, and uh, George obviously wrote the, the forward for, for this book. So um, but it was quite interesting because it got to the last ball and Gemma said to us, Who's who's going to win this? And I remember George saying, Warwickshire, Warwickshire going to do this. And I was like, just got a feeling that Hampshire are going to do it. And then obviously Batesy did what he did. Hampshire won. And I was right, wasn't I? So happy you days. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's probably one of the highlights of myself following Hampshire for 30 years. I, I was quite close to the action in terms of sitting in the lower grandstand, pretty yeah. much in line with the stumps where... Batesy, you know, uprooted them yeah. from the ground. And it was just incredible how it was quite mixed, the section we were sitting in, a mixture right. of Warwickshire and Hampshire fans. And yeah. me and my brother that were there, we were <laughs> up and then we were down because I think two balls to go, it was five to win. Yeah. And we thought, yeah, I, I think we can do this. Yeah. And then I think 
penultimate ball goes for four. Yeah. So I was like, oh, we've blown it. We've lost. Yeah. And then just the elation of realising that Neil Carter had missed it and that we'd won the cup and yeah. Warwickshire well, fans near us devastated. It was... Exactly, yeah. Yeah, a just incredible moment following Hampshire. and It just seemed made for Warwickshire, mm. didn't it? Because Carter, I think, was coming out as last, last ball for Warwickshire, wasn't it, or something? I think he was retiring after that game. And you just thought, if he gets anything on this... You know, you just drop a single, you sprint through, you know, the, the non-strikers probably halfway down the track already kind of thing. So you would have thought if he had got anything, even if it had been off the pad or whatever, he would have run through for a single. Um, mm. But it wasn't to be. No, that's right. And I mean, it plays a big part in, in the book going back to the Michael Bates part. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I guess, you know, whatever happens to, to Michael now, he'll always have that moment. As uh... Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, for, for Hampshire fans, it is a huge moment. I mean, we got, I really wanted to make a big fuss of that in the book because it is pure sort of sporting theatre. Mm-hmm. And I wanted, I wanted all our sort of contributors to sort of, you know, you get those videos, uh, you know, like documentaries on certain sporting moments and everyone's saying, oh, yeah, I was thinking this, I was thinking that. It's obviously it's harder to do that in a, in a book, but that's what we tried to do in that mm-hmm. chapter. So you got Dawson, what he was feeling, what was Katic feeling, what was Dimmy feeling, Dimmy wasn't playing, what was he feeling on the balcony, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it was amazing just speaking to all those guys and just getting, you know, as soon as you mention it, they got a smile on their face already because it's just such an incredible moment. Yeah, it's one I'll certainly never forget. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to your time time in the game, who were the big characters in the press box? Were there any sort of well, yeah, interesting uh, people there? Well, I mean, all the Hampshire guys were, were really nice. And, and um, you know, going back to that sort of nervousness, I, you know, I don't know if it's just me, but I think writers in general tend to have that sort of idiosyncrasy where they're just really nervous and don't feel worthy or whatever. But once I sort of felt, you know, I've been a few times at Hampshire, you know, the guys there are really nice. Simon Walter, uh, Steve Wilson, who was at the Portsmouth newspaper. I don't think he's there anymore now. They were, not, no. no, they were really good guys. Um, I, but I going back to keeping close to the sort of Batesy theme. I mean, I always loved it. So the 2013 and 14 guaranteed every time I was in the press box, Ivo Tennant would kick off about Batesy not being playing. <laughs> and it was just, it was brilliant because it, you know, obviously I wasn't, I didn't go there all the time. I had a full-time job. So I was sort of doing this in my spare time. Um, but, you know, the guys that were there every day, day in, day out. And, you know, I think they were like, yeah, Ivo does this every day. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was that, Ivo is a good guy. And, um, you know, we sent him a copy of the book because I know, I know he's a big fan of Batesy's. And he, I think he did a review in the Cricketer magazine for us. So, so that was really nice. Um, so, yeah, those guys are really nice. Um, but, yeah, everyone. I mean, funny. Another funny story, really, from the press box at Hampshire was um, there was oh, what's his name now? Um Vin, um, Mike Vimpany and oh, um, yes. yeah. he's sort of really well connected in sort of the youth cricket um, scene in Hampshire and um, he brought this this young lad in and um, you know he's a young Aussie lad black hair and um, you know everyone's like, oh who's this who's this and I, I was sort of engrossed in the game so I just didn't even sort of sort of look up from the from the laptop or whatever and um, a couple of weeks later I can't, what, what year would this have been 2000 and I can't remember, 2014, 15. It's one of the home ashes summers. And um, a young lad, a young Australian spinner strides out at number 11 and scores 100. And it's Ashton, Ashton Agar. Oh, wow. And, um, and I'm like, I know that guy. And sure enough, it was this young lad that uh, Mike was, was parading in the press room a couple of weeks earlier. 
So Simon Walter and Steve um, Wilson and all that had all gone over to have a chat and interviewed him and all that kind of stuff. I totally missed the boat and ended up <laughs> completely missing out on the big story of the Ashes that summer. So absolutely gutted about that one. <laughs> That's right. He was on uh, Ashtonago, if I remember rightly, he was in the sort of Hampshire Academy programme. That's I think, right. Where they get a handful of Australians over. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And he then, was. yeah, he found himself plucked from that straight into the Trent Bridge test match, which yeah. funnily enough, I was at Trent Bridge the day oh, when he scored 98. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So yeah, exactly that. So he's playing for a local team, wasn't he? In, you know, mm. Somewhere, I don't know if it's Romsey way or, or whatever, but somewhere around here. And then, um, yeah, plucked into the Aussie squad for the, for the first test, which was incredible. Wow. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Good story. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and looking ahead for Hampshire for next season, you know, you've become a fan yep. of Hampshire. What are your hopes for yeah, 2020? Well, I, I hope, um, I know for, for there was a while there where, you know, T20 finals day was sort of a guaranteed, wasn't it? And I think, um, you know, I remember sort of Woody sort of saying on, on Twitter and in interviews and when I spoke to him and stuff, you know, it's not, it's not a foregone conclusion. It's not always it's not always thus, you know, you don't always just get into final state, you've got to earn it and stuff. And, you know, Hampshire have just been, been there and thereabouts, I think, in the 20 over stuff in recent years. So it'd be nice to see him, you know, at the end of the day, it'd be nice to see him strong in all three formats. It's very difficult, you know, to have a squad that's that's capable of, of being mm. strong in all three formats at the same time. So, you know, 50 over seems to be our strongest suit at the moment. Uh, you know, obviously we got to the final last year, missed out, obviously Vincent Dawson couldn't play in that game. Which was which was unfortunate. Um, so you know, success would be good across all three formats. A trophy, limited overs trophy, I think personally, and I think the way, that, and certainly this is one of the, the threads from the book. The club's always been sort of keen to, to excel in white ball cricket. So I think from the club's perspective, a white a white ball trophy would would be deemed as a success. You know, the championship is always you know if you can start well and then sustain your form. Listen, we've got we've got a squad that's more than capable, I think, of doing well in the championship. Um, but it's just whether they can stay consistent throughout the season. I mean, you know, you've got players like Carl Abbott. I mean, it's just a huge match winner, isn't he? So, yeah, fingers crossed. You know, there's success across all formats, but I think they'd settle for a limited overs trophy and that would be a very successful season. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I feel like um, the Nathan Lyon signing perhaps yeah. uh, means that championship is going to be a focus. And yeah. uh, it my feeling is it's kind of now or never with the championship in that Kyle Abbott and uh, Fidel Edwards are in great form, but equally we need to sort of capitalize on them being in this great form before either they lose it or even retire. So I've got very high hopes for the championship, but as we saw last year, I think we won five or six games in the championship, but the the winners Essex won something like ten games. So yeah. it shows the gulf that's still got to be yeah. uh, crossed if we are to win that first championship in a long time. Agreed, and I mean, like I said, you look at the batting lineup, and it, you know, with Russo, Vince, Dawson, you know, you've got you have got a number of you know Northeast as well as sort of knocking knocking on the door for England as well a little bit, isn't he? So. You know, there's a number of players in there that you feel if they're consistently good all season, there's no reason why we shouldn't shouldn't be up there. And you look at other you look at the other successful teams and on paper, you're looking at these sides, you think, yeah, like you said, Fidel Edwards, Lyon, um, Carl Abbott, the bowling department, and you think, Wow, this, this is strong. So, you mm. know, 
for me, there's no reason why Hampshire couldn't compete in the championship this season. I suppose history just shows us that that little bit of consistency is sometimes lacking or that ability to 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 get a result, like you said, because obviously the amount of wins you need to win to win the championship is is I think sometimes where where Hampshire maybe maybe don't quite get it over the line. Um, you know, a few games there they're sort of leading in but don't win and stuff like that. So hopefully they can convert those this season and, and go close because I mean there's there's definitely the squad there to do that. Yeah, I, I completely agree. But yeah, I can't wait till it all gets going again Absolutely. in April. Absolutely. Well, the fixtures are out now, aren't they? So um, yeah, start planning been, your planning your summer. I've been planning, yeah, my diary and <laughs> time off around work and yeah. childcare and everything like that. Got to be done. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much, Tom, for agreeing to to talk to me, no guys. I, anyone listening, I would thoroughly recommend that you get yourself a copy of keeping up in time for Christmas or even new year. It's uh, a story that uh, it's great that Tom and Michael have told their, their story. Um, and it's one that's well worth reading. Um, Thanks, I believe you can get uh, the book on Amazon. It is available on Amazon. I mean, it's independently published and it uh, through Amazon. Um, so that's the sole place it can be purchased. Although we, we will be looking to do um, potentially another sort of signing event at the club um, before or around the start of, of the new season. So uh, look out on social media for details on that because we will be looking to do that again. Yeah, we'll, we'll tweet the links as well. Great. Thank uh, you. So that you can find the book. Um, and I'd thoroughly recommend reading it as I've said before, is is a unique cricket story. And just being that that much different from your average cricket book makes it one I would thoroughly recommend. Anyway, Thanks, thank you very much, Tom, for agreeing to talk to me. No worries. We'll, it's been a pleasure. And we'll speak to you again soon on Hampshire Fan Podcast. Mm-hmm.